Amen. Amen. All right, that's enough of that stuff. Let's get into the word. How many uh, have seen Peanuts comic strips? Some of you may read those or have read those in the past. Well, well, Lucy is a key character in those, and she often has philosophical conversations with Charlie Brown. In one of those conversations, she, she said this, Life is like a debt chair, Charlie Brown. Some place it so they can see where they're going. Some place it so they can see where they've been. And some place it so they can see where they're at. Charlie Brown looked puzzled. He's contemplating for a minute, minute and, and then he replies, Lucy, that's a great philosophy. But I can't even get my chair unfolded. <laughs> I think there's times when we all feel that way in life. Because life is so complex, we're just lucky sometimes to get it unfolded so we can settle into it. Think about what makes life so complex. There's daily decisions to be made that affect our lives both in the present and in the future. Some of our decisions affect our lives 10 minutes from now. Some of our decisions affect our lives 10 months from now. Some of our decisions even affect our lives 10 years from now. And those decisions don't just affect us. They have far-reaching consequences that affect those we love. On top of the decisions we have to make every day, there's so many challenges in life to navigate. And sometimes those challenges, they, they come in bunches. They come all at once. Sometimes they come totally unexpected. They, they all seem to touch us in a different way. And each challenge seems to require a different level of energy to respond to appropriately. On top of the decisions we have to make and the challenges we have to navigate, there's so many relationships in our lives to steward. And every relationship we're in has its own nuance to it. There's marital relationships, there's parental relationships, there's relationships with our young children, relationships with our teenagers, our, our college students, our adult children, our grandchildren. Relationships at work, relationships at Church, relationships among extended family. And sometimes one or more of those relationships are strained. So to steward all of our relationships well, especially when some of them aren't going so well, can sometimes feel impossible. I'm just making the point that we can all be a little bit like Charlie Brown. Because life is so complex, there's times when we're just lucky to get the chair of life unfolded. So then if life is that complex, and it is, what do we need that will help us the most? How do we get more out of life than just unfolding a chair? What's essential to make good decisions? What's essential to navigate the, the hardships of life? What is essential to steward all of our relationships well simultaneously? Here's what we need. God's wisdom. God's wisdom. What is that? Wisdom is this, the ability to apply relevant knowledge in an insightful way. In other words, when you have wisdom, you have the understanding and insight necessary to take what you know and apply it to your decisions. To take what you know and apply it to your challenges. To take what you know and apply it to your relationships. This is what we need. We need God's wisdom. And thankfully, James chapter 1 and verse 5 promises us that God will give it to us graciously and generously as we ask for it with faith. 
Here's the verse. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and it braideth not and it shall be given him. Aren't you thankful for that promise today? But here's where wisdom gets tricky. Not all wisdom is from God. While it's true that God graciously and generously gives us wisdom that is from above, the devil deceptively and subtly gives us wisdom that is from below. Someone once said that for everything God created, the devil has a counterfeit. And that's true when it comes to wisdom for sure. God offers true wisdom, but the devil offers false wisdom. And because the devil is crafty and subtle, he makes his wisdom look and sound and even feel a lot like God's wisdom. This is what he did with Adam and Eve in the garden. He he made his wisdom sound enough like God's wisdom that it made sense to Adam and Eve and it, it felt valid to them. So they acted on it and it was devastating. He does the same thing with us. He offers us a counterfeit version of God's wisdom as we're facing our own decisions, our own challenges, our own relationships. And if we're not careful, we'll confuse his false wisdom for God's true wisdom and the results will be devastating. Which brings up the question. If we really need God's wisdom to live well, and if there really is two types of wisdom... And if they sometimes look and sound familiar to each other, how do we know what kind of wisdom we're being offered? How can we tell if it's true wisdom from above or false wisdom from below? Here's how. We have to put wisdom to the test. That's why I'm titling the message this morning, Testing Wisdom. James is writing to a group of believers to teach them here how to identify true wisdom and how to identify false wisdom. Because if you remember, these believers' lives got very complex very fast. They'd been chased out of their hometowns. They'd been chased out of their home church because they were worshiping Jesus. And now they were being faced with many new decisions, a bunch of new challenges, and even had to form all new relationships in these new places. Apparently, according to chapter 3, verse 1, among these believers were many people eager to give their two cents worth of, quote, wisdom. There were self-proclaimed experts in every room ready to speak into their life who had the solution to all their problems. And were given the impression that these people, under the label of wisdom, were creating some division in their congregations. There was some false wisdom floating around in their midst and James wanted them to be able to identify it when it came their way by putting it to the test. So he teaches them how to put it to the test in verse 13. Study with me. Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation or a good lifestyle his works with meekness of wisdom. James is asking who is truly wise and what is true wisdom. Then he answers his own question. The one who is truly wise is the one who lives wisely. It's not rocket science. True wisdom, he says, shows itself through good deeds. And it's not just the way one lives. It's the attitude with which they do it. James says they live out wisdom in meekness, in humility. That means if one is truly wise, they won't tell you. Truly wise people are not arrogant. They're not self-promoting about their wisdom. And the truth is they won't have to tell you because their life will prove that they're wise. I'll say it this way. 
If you are truly wise, you will live wisely without having to advertise that you are wise. See, many people think they're wise. Many people think they're operating in wisdom. Many people think they're propagating wisdom. But the way to find out what is truly wise is to evaluate the actions and attitudes of that person. And to help us do that, James is going to give us a list of actions and attitudes that flow out of each type of wisdom. He's going to contrast three specific aspects of true wisdom and false wisdom so that we can identify it when it comes our way. He's going to teach us the origin of both types of wisdom. He's going to teach us the operation of both types of wisdom. Then he's going to teach us the outcome of both types of wisdom. Continue studying in verse 14. But if we have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. James instructs us to first evaluate the origin of false wisdom. Where does it come from? Well, verse 16 says that it descendeth not from above, meaning it doesn't come from God. Instead, it ascends from below. It comes from the devil. And he uses three terms. Did you see those? He uses three terms to describe its origin. He starts with this one, earthly. Meaning false wisdom has an earthly perspective and originates from worldly and even carnal considerations. He uses another term, sensual. All five times this word is used in the New Testament, it's used in a negative way. It has to do with the part of us where human feeling and human reason reign supreme. In other words, it has more to do with how we feel than what is right. He used the third term, devilish. Literally, that means demonic. Satan is behind false wisdom. The origin of false wisdom is hell. But what's the operation? Of false wisdom. What are some of its characteristics? Look at the first part of verse 14. But if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts. Notice that false wisdom has two characteristics. First, there's bitter envying. So we've seen the origin of false wisdom. Now we're looking at the operation of false wisdom. And here's how it operates. It operates out of bitter envy. This is the kind of envy that wells up in you when you're around someone who makes you feel your own inferiority. It's the kind of envy that is seeking um, our own good, even if it hurts other people. Warren Buffett said, it's not greed that drives the world, it's envy. And he's right, envy drives some of the most awful, evil, wicked human behaviors. But then he uses a term that goes hand in hand with bitter envy, and it's the term strife. Strife is a word that would have been used in this day in the context of Greek politics. It's talking about an angry type of competition where we're undermining another person and fighting for our own rights. If you want a picture of the word strife to be in your mind this morning, then just picture Washington, D.C. Strife everywhere. 
I, I mean, it is a dog-eat-dog dog mentality. They will assault another person's character, whether that is true or not, just to get ahead of that person. And unfortunately, the strife and that spirit of strife and envy in Washington, D.C. does not stay in Washington, D.C. It intrudes our homes, our churches, and our workplaces as well. By the way, that's why I don't raise a politician to the level of God. Because they're not and never will be. And so I'm not going to wave a flag somewhere promoting somebody or, 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 or getting a message out there that somehow we should be as loyal to this person as we are to the God of the universe. That wasn't in the notes, but that's good. When false wisdom infiltrates the family, it leads to moms and dads that will undermine the wishes of the other parent because they clearly see that their opinion about parenting is more valid. It's a dad that says, I'll let you do this, but don't tell mom. Or the mom who says, I'll let you do this, but don't tell dad. False wisdom can infiltrate the workplace. It causes even people who name Christ's name to become victim to a dog-eat-dog mentality. It's what leads employees to join in on the gossip, to tear down someone else so they can get ahead. False wisdom can creep into a church if we're not careful. Like when church gatherings start to look more like political gatherings where certain sides try to maneuver behind the scenes to get their way. That's wicked. Or when church members can tear down one another behind their backs and and the people who listen and hear the gossip stand idly by because they don't recognize how sinful and demonic these actions are in God's sight. Or when more established and tenured members of the church, and we have many, start to feel threatened by the possibility of new people getting involved and taking, quote, their ministry. That's wicked. All of this is behavior birthed out of false wisdom. It's the fruit of receiving wisdom that comes from Satan himself. So then what's the outcome of this behavior? If someone decides to receive false wisdom and make decisions based on bitter envy and strife, what are the consequences? Verse 16 tells us the consequences are twofold. First, the consequence is confusion. The same Greek word used two other times in James uh, that, 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 that he uses here in this passage. It's used two other times. Once in chapter 1 to describe the person who's asking for, for wisdom, but he's not doing it in faith. He's unstable in all his ways. The second time is in chapter 3 when he describes the tongue as being unruly or disorderly or out of control. So we get the idea that what James is after when he says the consequence of false wisdom, bitter envy and strife is confusion. He's after this idea of instability and disorder. You never help an environment. You never help an environment become better when there's bitter envy and strife in your heart. You heard it. Whether that environment is your home or your church or your ministry or your workplace or your school or your team or your nonprofit board that you serve on. If there is bitter envy and strife that you take with you and you operate out of those emotions, you make the people around you unstable. 
You make those within your organization and your church and your home, you, you, you make them feel this sense of, of, of things are out of order. You don't help things. But then he gets a little more general and he says it's not just confusion in the sense of instability and disorder. He says, let me give you a more general term. It's every evil work. What is James saying? He, he's, he's saying this. When someone acts in false wisdom, they act out of bitter envy and strife, there is no limit to the kind of evil that can be produced in that particular environment. In other words, envy and strife, when that informs your behavior, that informs your words, that informs your decisions, when that is present in your life, look up here, there is nothing good that will come out of that. Every evil evil work has been informed because somebody was first operating out of false wisdom. They might have said they thought they were doing the right thing. They might have said they had good intentions. But the problem is they weren't able to identify that the wisdom they were operating from was false. And so even if they had good intentions, the words that came out of their mouth caused instability. Even if they had really, really good, 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 good intentions, well-intentioned uh, 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 motives, they wanted to help something. The way they went about it was totally wrong. It was disorderly. And as a result of that, all these evil works are flowing out of it to those around them. Do you get the picture? So what do we do about it? If you've identified wisdom as being false wisdom from below, how do you respond? How do I respond? Look at the end of verse 14. He says, but if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. James says, don't brag about possessing true wisdom when the actions you produce show that your wisdom is false. Don't lie against the truth. And and, and glory and say things like this. I'm just trying to make things better. I'm just trying to be a voice for truth. Or, you know, I'm just doing what I think is best for everyone. Don't don't think that's a good thing when your actions are earthly, sensual, and devilish. I think the same thing goes for those who surround this type of behavior. Oh, please hear me, church. Worldly wisdom only gets a foothold in an environment when it is tolerated. When it is treated or not treated rather like the demonic behavior that it is. We must stop handling false, worldly, devilish wisdom with kid gloves. When a spouse refuses to confront the divisive and underhanded behavior of another spouse, false wisdom in the home grows bigger and bigger and there's more confusion and every evil work follows. Because somebody tolerated it. When a parent refuses to properly punish the worldly wisdom of their daughter or son that is manipulating and lying, false wisdom follows that child into adulthood. Where they will do greater evil. When a believer stands idly by while their co-workers or co-believers exhibit false wisdom, it gains a greater foothold in the workplace and creates a toxic environment. We must reject false wisdom when we encounter it. We must never claim to have true wisdom when the fruit of that wisdom is evil. 
So there's James's description of false wisdom. Its origin is from below. It operates from a place of bitter envy and strife. And it results in confusion and every evil work. Now he's going to quickly move to true wisdom where he uses two verses to explain the same things. But about true wisdom. Verse 17, but the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. Notice first the origin of true wisdom. It comes from above. It comes from God. Okay, we know it doesn't come from the devil. We know that it comes from God. Which means this, it doesn't come as a result of your personality. It doesn't come as a result of your intelligence. There's some really smart people in this room, I know there are. There's some smart people in this world and in the history of our world. But being smart does not make you wise. Wisdom that comes from God must affect how we live. You can be really smart and still make foolish decisions when you don't have true wisdom from above. There are also really good personalities in this room. Really good ones. But that doesn't make you wise. Because wisdom has very little to do with your wit or your likability. It has everything to do with how you live. How you make your decisions. How you navigate your challenges. How you steward your relationships. How many have heard about the slap heard around the world? I really like Will Smith. I know you probably disagree with me. I grew up on the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. How can you say, other than David who thinks he's a poor actor, which who cares what David thinks? That's false wisdom if I've ever heard any. If you grew up on the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, come on, man, that guy was so likable, so funny. I mean, all you had to do was watch the intro of the show, his song. You want me to sing it? I'm not going to. Don't get excited. (laughs) Tanner can, though. He was great. But just because you're likable doesn't mean you have wisdom when you're insulted. Because a grown man can go slap another grown man in front of the world and literally go and sit down and act like it was normal. Likeability, personality doesn't make you wise. It makes you fun to be around. Wisdom, watch is from God. And the proof of it is in what wisdom produces. Because what wisdom produces is not something that a good personality can produce. Or any amount of intelligence can produce. The list said this. This is the operation of true wisdom. It's first and foremost pure. Pure. It does not intermingle with sin and fleshly motives. He said it's peaceable. It it brings peace rather than strife. He says it's gentle. That means gracious and kind. It avoids severity and harshness when dealing with people. True wisdom, he says, I like this one. Easy to be entreated. You know what that means? You're open to reason. If something isn't black and white, true wisdom allows room to show deference and to give space for other people to be guided by their own conscience. It's not a stubborn inflexibility. True wisdom is full of mercy and good fruits. It's compassion in action. True wisdom is is without partiality. It's impartial. It doesn't vacillate depending on who you're around. Because wisdom operates on consistent principle. 
True wisdom is without hypocrisy. Those who operate with true wisdom don't have to pretend or go behind someone's back to get what they want. Now that's a lofty list of attitudes and actions which proves to us that this is supernatural. Wisdom from above is true wisdom and it doesn't come as a result of how you were raised, the college you went to, or how fun you are to be around. And look at the end result of true wisdom, verse 18. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. Now this sounds really confusing, so here's the Reader's Digest version. True wisdom produces peace and righteousness because it comes from peacemaking and righteous people. When you're truly wise, hear me, you'll bring a measure of righteousness and peace to every environment in which you reside. You'll bring righteousness and peace here at church. Righteousness and peace will follow you into work, not complaining, not criticizing, not questioning everything. Righteousness and peace will follow you into school, young people. It'll follow you on your team, young people. Christian, it'll follow you into your community. That's true wisdom. It's from above and it always results in righteousness and peace. So how should we respond to what we now know is true about, well, true wisdom? Simple. Ready? We should go get it. We should seek true wisdom. How do you reckon we do that? How do we get true wisdom? Here's where you start. You seek the giver of true wisdom. God himself. See, the Bible says in Psalms 111 verse 10 that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. True wisdom begins with a trusting and obedient relationship with God. True wisdom doesn't come as a result of of looking at James' lofty list of the fruits of righteousness and peace and saying, you know what, tomorrow morning I'm going to start making those a part of my life. That's not where wisdom starts. It starts with your relationship to God. There are two kinds of people in here. Very simply, I can separate you into two categories confidently. There's a category of people that are in a relationship with God, and there are a category of people that are not in a relationship with God. So let me talk first to the category of people that are not in a relationship with God. True wisdom for you is first a result of knowing and believing in an all-wise God. Do you mind putting that on the screen if it's, if it's back there, Colin? True wisdom is first a result of knowing and believing in an all-wise God. So let me ask you this. Are you in a saving relationship with God right now? Are you believing in Jesus Christ right now for salvation? Do you know God and does he know you. If not, listen closely to what we call the gospel. The word gospel means good news. Truly believing in the good news that I'm going to share with you in the next two minutes is what will make you truly wise. Here's the good news. It all begins with God. God has always been. In the beginning, God spoke And creation came into existence. Of all the beauty he created, the masterpiece was a man and a woman, Adam and Eve. He made them with the grand purpose of worshiping him and enjoying a relationship with him. And it was all going great. Perfect harmony. 
until those first humans broke God's law by trying to take their lives into their own hands. The consequences of their actions were devastating. Things like war, poverty, disease, greed, and scandal that plague our world are all a result of their sin. And sin doesn't just demonstrate itself on the outside of us in obvious ways, but also on the inside of us. Just think of the grudges we've held, the the lies we've told, the, the thoughts that we never dare say out loud. An honest look into our hearts reveals this truth. We are all guilty. Just like Adam and Eve, we have all tried to take our lives into our own hands. And that means this, that because of our guilt, we are destined to spend eternity without God. The question is this, what can be done about it? This is where God steps in. God became human in the person of Jesus over 2,000 years ago. He had a miraculous birth. He lived a unique life, perfect and without sin. This ultimately led to his agonizing death on a Roman cross. In the greatest display of mercy and grace the world has ever known, Jesus' life and his death became a substitute for all sinners. Then on the third day, Jesus emerged from his tomb, fulfilling his mission to defeat sin by rising from the dead. But it doesn't end there. All the good news continues. For those who trust in Jesus, God has promised to renew the earth. The new earth will be free of sin, a a perfect place of friendship with God and others. No devastation, no sin, no broken hearts, no pain, no death. God's original purpose will flourish as those he's rescued will enter the grand purpose of enjoying eternity with him forever. That's what he's done for you. That's the good news. But what's your part in all this? Well, God calls us to do two things. Repent and believe in this good news. Repentance takes place when you realize your own sinfulness and helplessness before God. It's a change of mind to see God for who he really is and sin for what it really is. When you repent, you see sin as a really big deal. Faith is trust in Jesus Christ alone to save you. It means instead of believing you can rescue yourself from the consequences of sin, you transfer your trust to the rescue that Jesus purchased for you by his death. Friend, this is the gospel. This is the only thing that will make you wise unto salvation. You can read self-help books. You can go to seminars. You can build good habits. You can try and better yourself every Sunday. But if you've never repented of your sin, if you never believed in Jesus, you will never truly be wise. And worse, you will miss out on eternity with the all-wise Creator. If that's you today, I want to urge you to take the very first step in our Grow Steps track. And that's believe. Believe. Believe Jesus died for you and wants to save your soul today. Repent of your sin. Trust in him. Well, how do I do that? Well, in just about three or four minutes from now, we're going to have what we call a response to the word, an invitation. We're going to invite Christians and non-Christians to come forward and, and do this. Now, I know some of you might not be ready for that. And the last thing we want to happen is for you to come down here, pray a prayer, and you really don't even know what you're doing. If you are ready for that because you've heard the gospel several times and you're ready to respond to it, by all means, come meet one of our pastors down here and they'll show you from God's word. But, but if, if, if you aren't quite ready but you're curious about this, take your connect card out. 
Okay, do that. I don't care if you're a member, a faithful attender, a first time. Take your connect card out and, and turn it around and check the box. Believe. Put your name and your number on there. And Brother David will, will follow up with you sometime this week. Set up a one-on-one time with you. We have what we call Fellowship 101. It's six weeks where we explain the gospel through the book of Mark. And you can go through that six weeks with Pastor David. And by the end of that, you'll know if you're in a relationship with God or not. Do that today. Do that today. I'm excited about the folks that in just a few minutes are going to get baptized. Really excited about that. And here's what I want you to know if you're not in a relationship with God. I want you to notice you watch that. Number one, they've already made a commitment of salvation before they got up there. But what they're doing is giving you a picture of this gospel. And so when we do that as a church, that's why we do it publicly as a church. Because there's going to be, the, the, the Christians need to be reminded of the gospel. But on top of the church need to be reminded of the gospel. There are some lost people in here today who need to be reminded that Jesus died, was buried, but rose again so that you can have new life. You're going to see that picture today. There's another category of people that I'll end with an application. And that's the people that are already in a relationship with Christ. And here's the truth for you. The amount of godly wisdom that you have in life will be determined by how much you make God a part of your life. God wants you to seek him more than just on Sunday mornings. I'm so glad you're here today. Genuinely glad. But God desires to meet with you every day. He wants to meet you in prayer every morning. He wants to interact with you through his word every day. He wants to infuse his wisdom into you through the godly people you associate with every week. In fact, our church has gone so far as to provide extra means through which you can gain godly wisdom. Through which you can seek the giver of wisdom. We have a connection group at 945 on Sunday morning. You'll see it on on our third growth step track there. That's where a big congregation like this is taken down to groups of 10, 15, 20, and 30. And you get to exchange prayer requests. And you get to be exposed to the godly wisdom of your Christian peers. On top of that, we have a Sunday night service at 6 o'clock. 6 o'clock. There will probably be somewhere between 220 and 230 people, 250 people back tonight for our Sunday evening service. We sing and we pray and we give and we preach. It's the same type of service. We have a Wednesday night service. Kids of all ages have kids clubs. And then we have a a service at 7 o'clock in here with the adults. And we go through practical biblical wisdom for you. Why is our church so proactive and committed to exposing you to godly wisdom as much as possible? You know why? Because the world is so committed to exposing you to false wisdom as much as possible. And as your pastor, that concerns me. If the devil is proactive and aggressive about getting false wisdom into your mind and your heart, then the church must be proactive and even aggressive in exposing you to true wisdom as much as possible. But friend, listen, you'll only receive that wisdom to the degree that you're willing to make it a priority in your life. Some Christians are chasing after worldly wisdom. Other than at 1045 on Sunday morning. I realize that life is very complex. We all have decisions to make, challenges to overcome and relationships to steward. That's why we need to be able to recognize true wisdom. When it comes our way. Because without it we will not do those things well. We need to recognize false wisdom. So we can reject it. Because you'll be exposed to it as soon as this afternoon. 
And how do we do that? We seek the giver of wisdom. We fear him. We love him. We trust him. We seek him. We chase after him. And then guess what happens? We will bear the fruit of peace and righteousness in every environment in which we reside. It's a beautiful thing. Stand to your feet. Everybody.